Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that you'd help us to understand what is happening as we look at the kings. Help us to understand, God, the the truth that you want us to, to see. I pray that you'd be my strength. I thank you, Lord, for just the opportunity to, to be here. And I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for our guest. I pray today that all of us would see the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles this morning, if you'd open up to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. This morning, I've entitled our message, In Need of a Good and Gracious King. In Need of a Good and Gracious King. And... Um, We're going to be looking at a lot. If you're on our Remind text list, I gave you a warning yesterday to read a lot of this section because uh, it's not going to be feasible to go through every verse of this section. But we're going to try to look at four observations that I pray would help us to see how the book of 1 and 2 Kings closes out pointing us to the reality of the hope that we need in a Savior. It's pointing us to the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you, uh, I've mentioned this before, but a lot of people say, you know, where would you like to be if you could be in any moment in, in Bible history? If you could pick any spot, and there's so many great candidates that we could pick stories. But I tell you, one that would be near the top of my list would be on the road to Emmaus when Jesus walked with those two men. And when he explained himself in the scriptures, that might be my number one moment because that would have been Jesus's biblical theology of how he is the center of all the scripture. And, and that would have been just dramatic. And I don't know what he shared with those men that day. I know their hearts were stirred. And I really wonder if the end of Second Kings was involved. I can't tell you for certain, but I can tell you that what we look at today is pointing us to the reality that Jesus is our good and gracious king. And we need him. And we see this as we look at the closing of what takes place in Judah. Four observations as we conclude the book of 2 Kings. The first observation we're going to look at is four evil men. Four evil men. After the reign of Josiah, there's four evil kings in the nation of Judah. And before we get there, though, I want us to see something. 2 Kings 23 28 through 30. Let's look at the strange ending to Josiah's life. A man who was godly. One of the eight godly kings of Judah, but one who had a marvelous reputation of being used by God. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him 
and made him king in his father's place. What's really interesting is that if we were to read the alternate passage, and, and we're not going to read it, but I want to just highlight a couple of things. In 2 Chronicles 35, what's fascinating is, is that it says in verse 22 of 2 Chronicles 35, Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself. Before, in verse 30, 21 of 2 Chronicles 35, Pharaoh Necho sends envoys to Josiah and he says this, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And then he says these words, And God has commanded me to hurry, cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. And then it says this, Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And that's how he died. And we go, how in the world does that take place? Well, I'll tell you, if you have been observing your own heart as of late, you shouldn't be surprised at anything that anyone does. Amen? And what we learn in this is that you, it doesn't matter if it's Hezekiah. It doesn't matter if it's Josiah. It doesn't matter if it's David. It doesn't matter if it's Solomon. It doesn't matter if it's Asa. All of these men, when we see godly works in them, it's because of the grace of God. These are fallible men. We need a greater king even than King Hezekiah, King Josiah. These are godly men. But, but this was an error that he made. It, it didn't need to happen, but he did. And the scripture's honest as to what takes place. And now Josiah is off the scene and we come to the last four kings and we're going to see four evil men. And here is the men. I'm going to give you the men and I'm going to tell you where they're listed. So if you're taking notes today, it may give you a chance to keep up with what's going on. And, and, and the passages here, there's four kings and four key passages. So we see uh, Jehoahaz, he's in 23, 31 through 35. He's the first king after Josiah. We see Jehoiakim. You see the reference there for him. You see Jehoiachin, and then you see Zedekiah. But, but to understand the lengths of their reign, if you, if you can think through this chronologically, this is what we need to see. There, there's four of them that reign, and they reign over a different period of time. We see that uh, 609 to 608 was Jehoahaz. Jehoiakim reigned 11 years. Jehoiachin reigned three months. Zedekiah close to 11 years. So you get a sense of these four guys, but we're going to walk through each one. And again, we're not going to have time to go through every detail of your life, but I want you to see the overall picture that these four men were evil. The first one, Jehoahaz. He's mentioned in verse 31. It says he was 23 years old. Chapter 23, verse 31, when he began to reign. And he reigned three months in Jerusalem. After speaking of his mother, in verse 32 it says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. 
And then we see in verse 33, And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath. I don't know if you're noticing this, but like if you look at um, the history, you've got different empires. You've got Assyria exercising its power. You've got Egypt seeking to come against Assyria. And here in just a few verses, Babylon is going to become the predominant power. Babylon's going to overtake Assyria. Babylon's going to overtake Egypt. And so at this point in the context, you see Egypt. But the key that I want you to see is Jehoahaz, he was evil in the sight of the Lord. He, uh, he didn't reign long at all. His, 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 he reigned three months. And, and you read here that Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah, laid on him a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, changed his name to Jehoiakim. So we go from Jehoahaz to Jehoiakim. He did not like uh, Jehoahaz. Necho didn't like him. He was there three months. And what's fascinating is that you read that, you know, even in the Chronicles account that, uh, I mean, this is quick, short-lived. He's out of there. And so now he's put in bonds. He's taken away. And now we have a new king. He goes off. The first king mentioned here, Jehoahaz, he goes off to Egypt to die. He's done. And Pharaoh Necho says, I don't like you. I'm going to put him in charge. And he puts another guy in charge. And his name is Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim's going to reign 11 years. But just like his predecessor, he's going to be evil. We read in verse 34 and verse 35. Look at verse 35 of chapter 23. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh to tax the land to give the money and according to the command of Pharaoh, he exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give to Pharaoh Necho. And then we read in verse 36 and 37, here this guy's 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years. And then the next verse, verse 37, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So that's the second king. His reign is 11 years. We'll see more about his reign in a moment because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is going to severely impact his kingdom. The third king that's mentioned, the third evil man, Jehoiachin. Hang in there with me. These are hard names. You got to really like, you got you to hunker down and you got you to gotta really focus here. Jehoiachin. And, and what you've got now is, is who is this guy? We'll read about him in chapter 24, verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And read verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged. Now, does this remind you of any story in Bible history? The book of Daniel. 
And remember when Daniel and his three friends were taken from where? From Israel, Jerusalem, all the way to Babylon. This is it right here. This is Nebuchadnezzar coming in. And this is going, as we'll see in a moment, this is going to be the first deportation out of Jerusalem to Babylon. And we read in verse 12, And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. Do you get the weight of this? Do you remember at the very beginning, First Kings starts out with the story of David. David is getting ready to die. Solomon comes into reign in the United Kingdom of Israel. And remember how God used Solomon to build the house of the Lord. And you remember what David gave to Solomon, basically in paraphrase saying, you follow the Lord. You seek him with all your heart. And now from 1 Kings to 2 Kings 24 and 25, everything is changing drastically. And before this is all over, Jerusalem will be destroyed. This is what's happening with the people of God. We say God's faithfulness, Israel's rebellion, and the need for a greater king. Everything we know of when we think of the kingdom of Israel is crumbling before our eyes. And we see the hardness of the people's hearts. We see the failure of their leaders, the wickedness of the kings, over and over and over. And it says there in 2 Kings 24, 11, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. He gives himself up. They carry him off. And now the final king that's listed, the final king as we end the book, Zedekiah, He's mentioned in 2418, and we read about Zedekiah, some familiar words, just as we saw with Jehoahaz, with Jehoiakim, with Jehoiachin. We see that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. I tell you, it's even mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 12, speaking of Zedekiah. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. This is where we're at. This is the leadership of the country. We see four evil men, but now to understand what's happening here, we see a judgment delivered. A judgment delivered. When we look at this judgment that's delivered, we have to understand that it was warned and then ultimately it was realized. It was earned. It was warned about, it was earned, and it was realized. And, and I want us to see this because it was warned. We, we saw this several chapters ago. If you go back to 2 Kings 17, verse 13. Notice this passage. 
Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet. Now, I want you to think something here. There's more prophets than what we have in the scripture, in the Bible books. There's some distinctions here. There's only a few prophets that wrote books of the Bible. Like there were two prophets to Israel, Hosea and Amos. But there were prophets to Judah, Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah. All of these men wrote books and they were prophetic voices. Hosea and Amos before 722. I know these dates can get tricky. If if you're since we're summarizing a little bit. If there's three dates you're going to remember in this entire study, it's 931. That's when the kingdom split. It's 722. That's when Assyria comes and conquers Israel in the north. And the third key date is 586. In 586, the Babylonians conquered Judah. Okay, But in those three, Hosea and Amos, before 722, We're warning the people, if you don't turn away from idols, if you continue walking in injustice, if you continue trampling the poor, if you continue acting this way, God will judge you. You will deal with the consequences that were given in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The blessings and the cursings of the law. So what happens? They go into captivity. You would think it's sort of like this. If... uh, I obviously can see this in my own house, but imagine you've got a, a, a you've got four brothers and sisters, and the oldest gets in trouble really bad for doing something. You you think at that point that the next in line is going to watch what happened to the oldest, and 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 he's going to learn. But imagine, let's say that uh, the oldest. Uh, I don't know. You pick. You pick the poison here. What does he do? He he stays up too late. He he gets caught sneaking around uh, after midnight, playing around with his friends. And the third one is gonna he get he gets it big time. I mean, he's grounded for for two months. He can't look at a video game. He can't use a cell phone. He can't do anything. Well, you think the third one in line, the next one, is going to be like, you know what? That is not wise because I saw what happened to Big Brother. Well, imagine immediately the third one a week later. What's he doing? He's sneaking around outside. He's messing around with his friends. And guess what? He loses his cell phone. He has no video game privileges for six months. Well, then you get to the third kid. You're thinking, oh, wait a minute. You've got two examples that you've observed here. Learn the lesson. That's exactly what's happening here. You've got Israel that's gone into captivity, and now Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, they're saying, listen, turn to God. Turn back. Don't follow the way of Israel in the north. You listen to the Lord God, but they will not listen. And 2 Kings 17, 13 says, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. I remember when I first learned about Jeremiah years ago, I was told, you know, that Jeremiah had no converts in 40 years. 
Jeremiah the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah in 18, if you got your Bible and you want to turn over there, Jeremiah 18, just to give you a sense of this, we got to move quick this morning. But I want you to see the heart of this. Jeremiah, if you were reading alongside 2 Kings, you would read a prophet's words in the same context as we close the book. In Jeremiah 18, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Verse 2, Jeremiah 18. Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house. And there he was working at his will. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way. And amend your ways and your deeds. But look at the shocking verse. But they say, that is in vain. We will follow our own plans. And will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? There we are. Four evil men that lead the nation into judgment. But now we see a judgment that was warned about a judgment that was plead, a plea of judgment, a plea of begging them to understand. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. There's passage after passage we could go through. You could go to Jeremiah chapter 7, 21 through 29. You could go to Jeremiah. You could look at over and over and over. Look at 2 Kings 24 verses 2 through 4 because you see this judgment earned. It says in verse 2 of 2 Kings 24, And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely, This came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and for all the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. There's where we are. And if you're going to see this judgment realized, this judgment earned, this judgment that came upon them, you have to understand three deportations, okay? Now we're looking at a timeline. There's one that takes place in 605 B.C. There's one that takes place in 597. One that takes place in 586. You may be like, well, what are you talking about? Well, just to try to give you a sense, 
The first one is under Jehoiakim. It's that passage we read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is in 605 B.C. That's what's happening when you look at 2 Kings 24, 1 and 2. There's a deportation. There's people being taken. Daniel and his friends were affected by what happens here in 2 Kings chapter 24, 1 through 2. And that's the first group that goes out. The second deportation takes place eight years later in 597. It's under the king Jehoiachin. Remember when he comes out, he reigns three months. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he goes out and he says, look, we surrender. We're not going to fight you. All of the nobles, all the people of the king's house, they come out. And what happens? Let's read 2 Kings 24, verse 14. 2 Kings 24, verse 14. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives. Where is he taking them? He's deporting them to Babylon. They're going from Jerusalem north and to the east. They're going all the way to the kingdom of Babylon. And what was this about? Do you remember Jeremiah prophesied they would be in captivity for 70 years according to the Sabbath that they had not kept? And you read this in verse 15. He carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, the craftsmen, the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So the first deportation takes place under Jehoiakim in 605. The second deportation takes place there under Jehoiachin in chapter 24, verse 14 and 15. The third one is in 2 Kings chapter 25. And we got to read this because we have to see this is the end of 586. This is the destruction that comes upon him. Look at 2 Kings 25, 1. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem, laid siege to it. They built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city, there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Araba. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king overtook him in the plains of Jericho and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah and they passed sentence on him. Now listen to this, y'all. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, 
That was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. You keep reading here, it's just shocking. Look at verse 11. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen and the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans also and the bowls. What was of the gold, the captain of the guard took away his gold. And what was of silver, his silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea, and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, a latticework and pomegranates. All of bronze were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been commanded of the men of war and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Amath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. There we are. We get here and we see four evil men. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoachin, Zedekiah. We see a judgment delivered, three deportations, 605, 597, 586, temple destroyed. Thirdly, third observation, we see reflections of ourselves. Reflections of ourselves. The older I've gotten, you know, when you're, when you're young, you hear this and you just sort of go, I used to think whatever, you know. But you get older and... Uh, I'll pick on my, my, my smallest ones in the house. And, and I, if I see them fighting, if I see them upset, you know, I want to go swimming today. Well, we can't go swimming today, but I want to go swimming today. You, I'm sorry, you can't go swimming. It's not happening. It's, it's not in the plan. It, it's not in your future. <laughs> it ain't happening today. I, you may want to do it all day, but I want to do it, but I'm going to be miserable. And you can get easily frustrated as a parent and, be tempted to get fleshly and be tempted to provoke them in your irritation. But here's the problem. I don't know if you've caught on to this yet. We are looking at little mini-me's of our own hearts. Have you caught on to that? 
And a lot of times when I see my little ones that are discontent, I see the discontentment in my own heart. They may want to go to a swimming pool. I may want to get out of a circumstance. They may want to go bowling. I may want this. I may be longing for this. They may want this. I may want this. I watch them fight with each other. But the problem is I see the fleshly responses in my own heart. I see microcosms of my own mindset in the people that are younger than me. Have you caught on to that? Parenting takes a different turn when you catch on to that. That you're seeing that little people struggle with the same thing you struggle with. And if you can't see your own struggles and their struggles, you're not seeing yourself as relating to their own heart problem. Well, what do we do here? Because if we left right now, you may be able to like, you know, pass a lot of Bible trivia. But it may do nothing for you practically. You may just have a lot of history. A lot of history that could bore a lot of people. But I'll tell you something. We have to see reflections of ourselves. Last week I was reading something by Paul David Tripp. And, and he mentioned a passage out of Hosea chapter 10, verse 13, speaking of the nation of Israel when, before they went into captivity with Assyria. And here's the passage. It says, you have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way. And in the multitude of your warriors. And Tripp says, the answer seems too straightforward and simplistic, but it is the answer nonetheless. The answer to every one of the questions above is sin. Self-reliance and self-sufficiency are what sin does to the heart. I pray that we could see something here. The problem of Judah is the problem of humanity. The problem of Judah is that rather than turn our hearts to God, we are self-reliant and we are self-sufficient. We don't need God. It reminded me of another passage. You know, Tripp goes on and he said this and it really grabbed me. He says, all of these things happen, the prophet says, because you wanted and trusted your own way and relied upon your own strength. He goes on, he says, sin causes us to deny our need for God and others. Sin causes us to assign to ourselves the wisdom, strength and righteousness we do not have. Sin causes us to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. Sin is shockingly proud and self-assured. Sin really does cause us all to fall into the delusion that we can be like God. And because sin does this to all of us, it is dark, deceitful, and dangerous. Self-reliance and self-sufficiency as your fundamental approach to life will never lead to anything good. Sin always leads to death of some kind in some way. And we look at this and we see even in 600, even in 750 before the destruction of Israel, in 605, we're looking at the problem of depravity. We're looking at the problem of the heart. 
The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, right? And, and we're looking at this and we're going, what is going on? Men and women, boys and girls are by nature self-reliant to turn away from their creator, suppress the truth and unrighteousness and go their own way. And that is the problem. We can look at Judah. We can be reminded of Israel and Hosea, but just like we read in Jeremiah 18 verse 12, but they say that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. I pray we'd look at this. If you've gone through First and Second Kings and you don't have a better understanding of your own heart, I pray one day you do. Because if you simply look at the errors of Israel and Judah, the sins of Israel and Judah, and you can't see yourself, you're missing the problem that's the common temptation to all of humanity. Four evil men. A judgment delivered. Number three, a reflection of ourselves. But I want you to see something here that ends. I pray that it would encourage you. A forecast of grace and mercy. A forecast of grace and mercy. This is unreal because what we just read is pretty sobering. If you didn't have any sense of like the timeline of biblical redemptive history, you think it's done. There's no more. It's over. They had a nice ride and they experienced God's grace and mercy for a season, but now it's done. You wouldn't know what we see, but, but there's a strange ending here. An ending that's shocking. An ending that is amazing. Look with me at 2 Kings 25 and... A man that was mentioned for three months comes back on the scene in a very mysterious way. And if you go to 2 Kings 25 and you go to verse 27, I want to read the last four verses with you. And this is fascinating. Remember Jehoiachin? He was reigning for three months and he surrendered. He's taken off. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, he sounds like a nice guy, in the year that he began to reign, he did show grace, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Now, isn't that an odd ending? An ending in the midst of complete devastation. It's like a side note of, oh, by the way, you remember that king Jehoiachin? The king of Babylon showed mercy on him. 
What's the point of the narrator? What's the point of the author here? What is the point? Well, well, who is Jehoiachin and how does he relate to stuff that takes place later? Go with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you know, you start out, I'm just going to read the first two or three verses of Matthew 1. I'm going to read Matthew 1, 2, and 3, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 9. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And then it goes on and on and on. We get down to verse 9. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of who? Jeconiah. Are you kidding me? There's Jeconiah, the man mentioned in 2 Kings 25, verses 27 through 30. You mean to tell me that the promise that we read in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 4, you remember that? You remember in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 4, it said, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. You mean to tell me that in the midst of all of this devastation and destruction and horrible judgment, that God had not forgotten his promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel 7. That God was going to use Jeconiah even as he was under the judgment of God, he was going to use Jeconiah as a picture of his mercy and grace and his promises that would never fail. Wow. The end of Second Chronicles. Go with me over there. It's an ending, different ending than we see in Second Kings. But go to Second Chronicles chapter 36. It's amazing. You get to the ends of, of both of these, 2 Chronicles, 2 Kings. In 2 Chronicles 36, verse 17, we read in verse 17, 18, and 19 of the fact that the, it says in verse 17, therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And then we read down in verse 20 and 21 of 2 Chronicles 36. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons and to the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. But then a strange, strange ending to Second Chronicles. Verse 23. 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Because after Babylon was a world power, guess who came on the scene as a world power? Persia. And 23, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And Tony Marita instructed me here, and I love this. Cyrus says, God uses Cyrus to bring the Jews back. He says, whoever's among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And little did he know that hundreds of years later, Matthew 20, verse 17 and 18, we would read of one who would go up to Jerusalem. In Matthew 20, verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Four evil men. A judgment delivered. A reflection of our own hearts but a forecast of grace and mercy. We need a greater king. The greater king is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can forgive you of your sin. This morning, you have much more in common than you ever dreamed with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. You are just as deceptive. You are just as cunning. You are just as self-sufficient And I can't point a finger at you. I got three coming back at me. It's the plight of the human heart. And what is the scripture showing us? The scripture, as we look at it, because we have the luxury of the Old and the New Testament, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ, the closing to the book of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles reminds us God's grace is still at work. That God is going to be faithful to his promise that God is going to bring the ultimate son of David through the line of David, and he is going to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And this morning, where's your hope? Have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, who are you depending on? What are you depending on? Whose work are you depending on? Are you depending on your own work to merit yourself favor before God? trying to live a good life, trying to get yourself in church, trying to be a better dad, be a better husband, do all the right things, get your life in order, get your finances right. The point of life only begins when we recognize we are incapable of all of that. And we need a savior. We need a sinless substitute. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, those who place their faith in him, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So this morning, there's good news. There's a forecast of grace and mercy when you'd least expect it. 
in the midst of a storm like you've never seen, God's grace shines through and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that very grace. Would you bow your head?